Hi, everyone. My name is Elijah Drenner here for Vinegar Syndrome, and today I'm joined with Adam Rifkin, a.k.a. Riff Coogan, to discuss all things The Invisible Maniac. Adam, welcome, and thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. So let's just jump in. Tell me the genesis of The Invisible Maniac. Well, when I was 20, I had made my first film. It was called Never on Tuesday, and... Uh, Upon completing it, I reached out to a filmmaker who I was a huge fan of named John Landis, who had directed Animal House, Blues Brothers, American Werewolf in London, so many other classics. And I just had always loved his movies, and he inspired me when I was young. And so I wanted to show him my first film, and he couldn't have been nicer, and he invited me to the Universal lot, and he screened my film, and he took me to lunch, and he was very, very magnanimous with his time and his advice. And he's subsequently become a mentor and a a great friend. But one of the things that I remember him saying in those early days very vividly, he said, you know, when you're a director, you get very few opportunities to practice. Uh, You're just thrown in. You know, somehow your movie, the planets align, your movie gets funded, and then it's all systems go and you you just have to jump in. And he said if there was a way to practice more, it it, it could only be a benefit. So I remembered that. So anyway, the, the first script I ever wrote was called The Dark Backward, and I was trying desperately to get that made. Um, and that movie was finally starting to come together, and that movie meant a lot to me. Um, and the, the, the words of John Landis uh, echoed in my mind that, you know, directors could benefit from practice. So I thought to myself, as The Dark Backward was, was slowly coming together and, and starting to prep, I thought, well, if I could do a tiny little just little grindhouse movie right before the dark backward, just to get a little more practice in behind the camera. It, it, I think it would benefit my, my performance as a, as a filmmaker on the dark backward. Cause I really wanted the dark backward to be as, as great as it could be. So <clears throat> one of the producers of never on Tuesday and the dark backward was named Cassian Elwes. And mm-hmm. he also was cranking out tons of exploitation straight to video movies during that time. And, uh, I said to him, you know, while the dark backwards, you know, marching toward uh, a start date, I want to do one of these little tiny movies and just flex my muscles a little bit. So I came up with this idea for The Invisible Maniac, and he thought it was great, and he told the idea to the guy who was funding a lot of these movies for him, mm-hmm. a, uh, a uh, guy named Merton Shapiro, <laughs> <laughs> who looked very much like what you'd expect a Merton Shapiro to look like. <laughs> Uh, and um, and so we uh, we decided we would do this movie. So so the dark backward was kind of I wouldn't say in full prep, but it was in preliminary prep while we made the Invisible Maniac. I see. And it's interesting that you bring up John Lannis because this whole opening sequence here reminds me very much of Animal House. <laughs> of course. How could it not? I mean, you know, these things influence you, you know. They, they seep into your work, the, the influences that you grew up with, you know. Well, well, well John, and you're from Chicago. I am. And so John Lannis was from Chicago originally, well, too, Well, he's he? from New York and, and grew up in L.A. But, but I, I thought there was like a Chicago connection because well, a lot of his movies, I mean, obviously Blues Brothers, but. His Chicago connection, I he'd have to, I can't speak for him, but I, I believe the Chicago connection is the is the blues and the music and the movies and stuff like that. Okay. I, I don't think, you know, but uh, but his presence in Chicago loomed large when I was there. When I was a kid, they were shooting the Blues Brothers, and it was an event in yes. the city. So that was that was fun. Well, John really is a very gregarious, uh, 
supportive filmmaker. And when you go, people reach out to him, he gives you 100%. Absolutely true. And he gave me 100% always when I was starting out. I mean, just great advice. He, you know, great. Uh, um, you know, he would he would call people on my behalf if I needed a call from a heavyweight. I mean, he was just always very generous. And this this young boy who's playing uh, Dornwinkle as a young child is sort of the um, what I always refer to as the uh, Rifkinian dweeb. <laughs> um, this sort of reoccurring character that happens in a lot of your movies. I mean, you see Miles in Psycho Cop Returns. You see. Your character in Chillerama, you even see like Penn Jillette in Director's Cut. This nerd, this nebbish nerd who gets revenge <laughs> in some way. Um, on, on, have you ever thought about that? Am I am I reaching too I, hard? I, I wouldn't say that I thought about it consciously, but it certainly is another uh, example of my influences. You know, I mean, I was very influenced by Woody Allen growing up. Mm -hmm. You know, he was the, you know, the. The unlucky nebbish, you know, who uh, who who would find himself in embarrassing situations. I mean, and so many other movies, you know. I mean, I just related to that character for whatever reason. I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wear glasses. I'm a bit of a, you know, I I was never the football hero growing up. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I think this is a character that I related to in films, and and it just reflected in the movies that I then would go on to make. And it's an archetype that's also, I mean, just to be totally candid. It's an archetype that's easy to immediately grasp when you're watching a movie, you mm -hmm. know. Um, you don't have to explain a lot about the don't. character. And so because of that, there's a shorthand between the filmmaker and the audience that hel helps get things rolling quicker, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I also think a lot about, you know, Robert Crumb or Mad Magazine. And you know, all those are huge influences on me, too. Because you were also an artist. Yeah, cartoonist, I would say, yes. more than an artist. But yeah, yeah, I, I've, I always have been into cartooning and always into um, Mad Magazine and comic mm -hmm. book kind of stuff, horror comics and, and you know, all that kind of stuff, and, wacky and packages. This falls right into that category Absolutely. as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Well, here we are. And, and Do you know where where this location is? This, this Everything was shot at the same location, which was a school in Los Angeles, on Laurel Canyon Boulevard at Ventura. Okay. And uh, it it's changed hands a number of times throughout the years. At this time, it was abandoned. It was well, not abandoned. It was just empty at this time. Um, but it, it it's been different different schools throughout the years. And for this brief window, it was available. It was empty, and we were able to use it. Well, uh, so uh, the the <laughs> school it had a school. It had dorm rooms. It had this chapel area. It had everything we needed. That's my grandfather, Harold Sokol, <laughs> the great Harold Sokol, deli owner from Chicago, big influence on my whole life. Also, uh, I want to point out that my mother is in this scene. My grandmother is in this scene. My then girlfriend at the time, Valerie Brayman, who is still one of my closest friends, is in this scene, all playing uh, scientists. Tony Marks, one of the other producers of the film, his mother is in this scene. Uh, Matt Devlin, the other producer, his mother is in this scene. So this this scene was a family affair. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, too. You bring up, you know... That's Tony Mark's mother. Okay. ...of molecular reorganization in the journals. And they have a lot of gobbledygook to speak. I mean, how, did they deliver their lines pretty easily? Everybody was pretty good at it, except for the... Uh, the doctor from Belgium. He kept messing up his line. But everybody else throughout the movie, and especially Noel Peters, who who 
is playing the Invisible Maniac himself, his ability to memorize science nonsense was awe-inspiring. Now, you mentioned Tony and um, and and Mark, right? The other producer, Mark Devlin, is that Matt Devlin? Matt Devlin. So, that's sorry. my mother right there, and that's oh, Valerie is. over her right shoulder. Completely. They wrote the script, or did you write the script? I wrote the script. They did a rewrite on it while I... See, the thing is, while the movie was prepping, I was also prepping The Dark Backward. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the prep for this movie, um, I I wasn't um, present for some of it. I see. So they did the production polish while I was prepping The Dark Backward. Are they credited on the script? I don't know if I don't I, think I they think, are. I, I, I think that they are. I are think they? in some way online somewhere it says that the, their name is on It might say it on IMDb. I don't think it says it on the movie though. Did it? I missed I missed I, it. We I'll were talking. To go back and look. But uh, they did a production polish on it, but I I wrote the original script and um, and they they kind of did a little bit of a lot of the I should say a lot of the prep. That's my grandmother. They did a lot of the prep of the movie while I was that's a stunt man. Um they did a lot of the prep while I was on The Dark Backwards. So, generally speaking, <laughs> to me, this whole movie was just, a, as I was mentioning, a chance to just get some practice in on set, you know? So, nobody on this movie believed we were making a good movie. Nobody, right? It was just fun, the stakes were low, we had no time, we had no money. I mean, we shot the movie in about a week. We had about 100, maybe 150 grand to make the whole movie. And anytime things went wrong, anytime something looked shitty or cheap, we just thought it was funny. We didn't take it super seriously. And I have to say, as a result, it made it so much fun to make because the pressure was, was low. Mm-hmm. As opposed to on the dark backward, which I was so consumed with wanting to make sure that it was as good as it could possibly be, it was much more stressful. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong, making every movie is fun, and even when everything goes wrong, it's more fun than when everything goes wrong when you're not making a movie, you know? <laughs> but uh, this movie just provided me with a great opportunity to, to play on, on set. And, and, and th there was one point in time on the movie, I had just recently, prior to shooting this, I had just watched Hearts of Darkness, the making mm -hmm. of movie about Apocalypse Now. Mm -hmm. And something struck me while I was on set of this movie. I was looking at the cameras, and I remembered the exact moment in the documentary where the helicopters come in, and the crew catches Vittorio Storaro saying to Coppola, they, the, the copters came in a little too high. We might want to do it again. We have them come in a little bit lower this time. <laughs> And I'm thinking to myself, they have the same cameras we had on this movie. They had all the same components, film, a crew to help make things move more smoothly. But, you know, they made a brilliant classic and I, I, we were making a piece of, you know, exploitation nonsense. But I realized it's just all, you know, the, the, the tools are, are the same, mm -hmm. no matter what movie you're making. And, and what's different is how seriously you take it, how talented the people are who are making it. It was a very educational moment for me. I, I thought to myself, you know, you can make a movie great no matter what the budget, no matter what the schedule, if you have really good people 
you know, working within whatever limitations you have to make it the best it can possibly be. Now, none of us were making this the best it could possibly be. <laughs> we were just we were just cranking out product, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. But it was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, that product, quote unquote, is the direct to video market. And this was a big I mean, people talk about it. Even people listening to this, they know about it. But like this was a real huge market. Huge. It was a huge market and it was completely uh, it was it was a a huge part of what this is all part of the campus. Everything is here is okay. part of the campus of that school. Uh, it was a huge. Um, I guess it had been a Christian school at one time. That's why they had the chapel and oh, I see and everything okay. and the, the quarters for the 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 clergy people to live. Uh, Everything I'll, we needed was there. I'll say that Noel Peters really reminds me of Henry Hull from uh, the uh, Werewolf of London in this sequence. Oh, totally. I mean, he uses his body <laughs> just when he like comes into the frame. He even bears a resemblance to him just as an actor, a too, bit, which, yeah, which I really bit. appreciate watching this movie. <laughs> well, I, when, when this movie, when we were screening the uh, answer print at the lab at Photochem, right when we had finished it, I, I needed to go and sort of approve it. And I was with a buddy of mine and we went and I said, hey, do you want to come and watch it with me? He said, sure. So while we were watching that very scene where he's running, where he does his escape and he's looking back and forth, and I said, he's a very committed performance, which was very true. He was completely committed to making this performance the great performance of all time. And it, it shows. He does a great job. He really does. And how did you find him? Well, Tony Marks, who's one of the producers of this, was the casting director of The Dark Backward. Mm -hmm. So one of, before we had Bill Paxton for the role of Gus, we were auditioning people. You know, we wanted Bill Paxton, but we didn't know if we were going to get him. So we were auditioning people, and Noel Peters came in and auditioned for the role of Gus and was so funny and, and was so, you know, he was so big and larger than life, we just thought, you know, this guy's great. So when we decided to make Invisible Maniac real quick, you know, crank it out, have some fun, uh, we remembered him. And so it was kind of this kind of this role was kind of written for him in a way, you know. Okay, I and mean, you didn't offer it. I mean, you just just did you make him uh, audition again? For or this? Was it? No, no, we just offered. Okay. Them. Yeah. All right. All right. And here we have Stephanie Blake. As Stephanie a, Blake, who is a, a successful actress and burlesque uh, performer. Yes, that's right. And we're looking at uh, a bunch of old teenagers, really. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we, we didn't care. We thought that was funny, you know? Well, it was it was par for the course in those days. You know, this is 90210 era, I suppose, exactly. or close to. So, um, yeah, tell me a little bit about, um, well, there's Bubba, right? And there's Deborah Lamb in the back. Um, By the way, Bubba, Eric Ciampanella, he's gone on to become a very successful screenwriter. Yes, I director. saw that. Yeah, 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 yeah that's he's, great. He's very successful. Um Stephanie Blake, Miss Cello, played Miss Cello. She was she was great to work. Everybody was great to work with. That's the thing on this movie. Everybody was just in it to have fun and to everybody knew the assignment going in, you know? And even though Noel, you know, gave it his all, you know, so did Vincent Price when he made, you know, some of those horrible movies he made back in the sixties <laughs> and seventies, you know? But sure. but that's one of the things that I love about guys like Vincent Price and Boris Karloff and all those guys who were doing those Roger Corman movies at the sort of twilight in the twilight years of mm -hmm. their career, they never walked through a movie. Never. They no. always gave it their all. And that's what I appreciated about Noel Peters and everybody on this movie. Nobody walked through it. Even though everybody knew and we joked about it the whole movie. That it was that what we were doing was silly and it was not going to be great and it was good, but you know, but but everybody 
everybody showed up, and that was that was fabulous. They all have conviction, and because and because of that, you can watch the movie a lot easier because you know everyone is there, as you said, especially Noel. Absolutely. Now, Shannon Wilsey, who who's, yes. who's now who is in the foreground here, this beautiful blonde girl. She went on to become Savannah, who was the most famous porn star in the in all of the '90s. Yes, but uh, this was her first film. It was her first film because there's some there's some information online that shows a, like a different pseudonym where she was making adult films, but couldn't have been because she not, was too that young. Is, that is inaccurate. This was her very first film, uh, and she was so sweet and so funny, just naturally funny. She didn't even try to be funny. She was just she just had that sort of Marilyn Monroe funny mm-hmm. quality about her. And uh, yeah, she was she was great. Everybody was great. I mean, Melissa Moore was great, is still great. You know, I was just I've been back in touch with a few of the people who worked on the movie because of this pro- this yeah. Blu-ray release and reconnected with some and talked about uh, the upcoming um, interviews, release and interviews yep. and stuff. And everybody has really, really positive memory about making this movie, which is fun. And this gentleman here was also in Derek Backward. Yes, Jason Logan, we met on this movie. He was, again, fully committed, which <laughs> was fabulous. We loved. And so I thought he was had such a great face that I used him in the Dark Backward, which we then ended up shooting very soon after this. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the name of the school here? This, this, I mean, is JKF, is that just supposed to be a, 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 well, you a, know, a joke for, I mean, it looks like we, Jack Off we to didn't, me. We didn't make those costumes. <laughs> you know, we just rented them. So whatever <laughs> whatever was already on the sweater, we okay. just went with. Because I, that's, I, I, that's what makes, maybe that just says something about me, but it, it looks like it's... Uh, a I, euphemism for Jack Off. I like the way you think. <laughs> You've come to the right movie. <laughs> now, I will say this. This is something, speaking of straight, the straight-to-video uh, Market. era, the halcyon mm-hmm. days of straight-to-video mm-hmm. uh, exploitation, grindhouse movies. You know, you look back on all these movies now, and they're filled with nudity. Mm-hmm. Gratuitous nudity mm-hmm. and gratuitous violence, right? Now, that's not just because everybody in those days happened to be a pervert. Well, maybe to some degree that's true. But that was a that was a prerequisite for sales. Mm-hmm. It was it was you could not sell your movie to the foreign territories, which is where most of the money was made for movies like this, in the various foreign territories. You they were they were unsellable if you didn't have if you didn't meet some sort of nudity and violence qu- quotient, you know? Right. So, um, so that's why every movie he, in this time period during of, the, of this uh, of this straight-to-video era, that's why they're all filled with it. Um, you look now, you look back on it now, and it all seems a little skeezy, you know? Well, you know, it, but it was. And, you know, you think about the... Um, the red curtain at the video store. That's where all the, the dirty movies were. And That's every right. kid knew that. Yes. And what could you get your parents to rent for you that right. looked harmless right. but would have what could be some version of what's behind that red curtain? It's true. And that would be The Invisible Maniac. It's I mean, true. It's, this was one of those movies like where it's a very harmless, almost Disney-like cover. Right. <laughs> right. It's true. <laughs> but, but, you know, we all knew when we were kids that this movie was... Pervy. It's true. But by the way, I mean, you know, the studios were doing the same thing with, speaking of John Landis, with Animal House. Absolutely. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Porky's. I mean, it's hard to to put oneself back in those days, but consider that pre-internet, right, mm-hmm. 
libidinous teenage boys, which was the market, mm-hmm. let's, let's be honest, okay. couldn't just click on a mouse if they wanted to see a set of breasts. Right. You know, you he either had to rent a movie like this or you had to somehow sneak into or get somebody to take you to see Animal House or um, you would steal a dirty magazine from from behind the counter of a of a convenience store. But there was no other way. And so these movies fulfilled a certain a certain need, I guess right. you could say. Right. And uh, unapologetically. It, uh, without question. <laughs> and so my feeling was if I'm going to make an exploitation movie, this was this was we decided this going in. If we're going to make an exploitation movie, let's make an exploitation movie. Let's mm-hmm. let's bring it. Right. So we did not want to shy away from why people would want to rent a movie like this. Right. Right. And, and Melissa Moore here, she was um, a very busy actor during this time, making a lot of these movies. Oh, she was she's in, in a ton some of, of those witchcraft uh, yeah. movies as well. So, um, yeah, it's uh, you begin to notice a lot of those faces, familiar faces when you watch these movies. But I don't know if anyone really took them, uh, you know, really wrote down some of these names. I guess there was magazine like Femme Fatales. I mean, that and magazine. there was also the, the magazine called Scream Queens. Yeah, yeah. So there, there was a market. These, these, these actresses yep. really did have. It's true, and also too, they became famous in magazines like Fangoria and mm-hmm. stuff like that as well. But yes, that it was a, it was a, um, it was a thing to be a Scream Queen was a, was a, a style of, of uh, success. Right, know? and uh, they could market themselves that way. Absolutely. And here you have like the, this amazing scene. Who <laughs> this idea of turning on the radio <laughs> to to dance in the shower? I mean, that's that's inspired. Why, why did it take cinema so long to figure out that's all you need is just a radio in the shower? <laughs> <laughs> it's embarrassing now when I look back on it. But well, um, that's of all the embarrassing things. That's the one you're embarrassed about. One of one in a series of embarrassing yeah. things. And this is this very strategically placed vent. Um, did, when you're when you were trying to find this location, did you look for a vent, or was that just there? Was it in the script? It was definitely in the script. I don't remember if it was in the script as a vent or as a whole. Uh, like, right. You know? uh, <laughs> like you know, a la Porky's. You right. Know? But uh, I, you know, the, the thing is, when you're make, basically when you're making any movie, there's a there's a to some degree, you you adapt to what you have available to you, especially if you're making an independent film. So, this gym had this vent. So now, what they're looking at in re- in reality right. is not into the shower. We built that shower was a set. Actually. Oh, it was. It was a just a like a two wall set. Okay. That we pumped water in. That was um, that that was. Uh, we had warm water pumped in. Okay. That was, was that at the at the school as well, or was at that the school? That was oh, at the it school. was. And and it was. Uh, it's the one—I think it's like the one set we built. Okay. I don't think we really built anything else for this movie. Everything else was—what we could find is what we used. Okay. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, his whole body language is, uh, is really admirable. I, I love his performance in this. We were, we were planning to make a sequel. Really? That never ultimately materialized, unfortunately. But— um, it was going to be called I Was a Teenage Invisible Maniac, and Miles Dougal was going to be Noel <laughs> Peters' son. <Excuse> me. <laughs> for whatever reason, it never happened. Well, there's still time. There's ne- it's, it's never too late. You're absolutely right. It's never too late. 
So you know, you you've got a low budget. You shoot for a week. Like, what's the ratio of like? Are you just like doing one take? I mean, I, Stephanie kind of slightly flubs a line here in this scene. If you go back and watch it again, <laughs> and and I just wonder, are you like doing multiple takes, or are you just doing like a one take and then moving on? We did multiple takes very infrequently. It was truly the the uh, Roger Corman style of shoot and run, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, his his line was, unless the camera falls over, you don't get another take. Right. We didn't quite take it to that <laughs> extreme. But we also thought it was, like I said, we just thought it was funny if somebody flubbed the line. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, and I don't want this to sound disrespectful to everybody involved, because everybody worked hard, including myself. We all did our best within the parameters of understanding that we knew we were making a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. You know, so, but but that's... That has a, to word it that way, has a pejorative spin on it. We we were making a piece of shit lovingly. We love pieces of shit. We love exploitation movies. We love horror movies. We love grindhouse movies. So knowing it was a piece of shit was not something that we were ashamed of. We just thought it was funnier that mm-hmm. way. You know. Right. Right. The the shackles were off. The there's, shackles there's were off. No pretensions. Exactly. Just make it's a, it. It's a perfect way to put it. Hmm. Um. I don't remember where this rabbit came from, but I'm a, I am and I have always been a avid animal lover. Yes. So I just want to make it clear the, the rabbit uh, was not harmed in any way during the making of this film. Did you have the Humane Society on set? We did not. But I was a little bit of my own Humane Society because I am such an animal uh, freak. So I made sure the animal was treated very, very uh Kindly. Mm-hmm. Now, so was was this like a, a union picture? No, mm-hmm. it was not. It was not. I don't think we were we may, we were involved in any unions at the time. I was not at that time in the Writers Guild or the Directors Guild. I don't think any of the actors were in the Screen Actors Guild, or if they were, they were in it anyway. Under pseudonyms. Under pseudonyms, uh, we were not IATSE. We we were not union at all. Okay. But we we were pretty under the radar. I mean. Once we parked our our one truck, if we even had one, I don't even remember, at this location, we were just there the whole movie. So we were we were on private property the whole time. I see. And were you doing like, I mean, I, Tony and Mark did the preparation for you, but you obviously did some of your own prep day to day. It's like, what was that prep? Well, like with any movie, you know, you you, I do my my preliminary prep before. Just in my mind, you know, I, mm-hmm. I know in my mind and I make shot lists of how I imagine shooting a scene or what shots I need to be able to convey what I want to convey, whether I want it to be scary or funny or whether I want it to just be basic coverage or do I want a lot of gravy shots or, you know, whatever it is. I, I put those things down to paper before we start. Um, and then the night before, you know, you 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 re familiarize yourself with the scenes the next day. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you get to the set, you block things out very roughly, you know, with the actors and the cameraman, you know, how you're going to shoot it. Now, one thing that we did, for example, to save time, is every, and this is called block shooting. I didn't know it was called block shooting at that time. Mm-hmm. We just did it because it seemed like it was going to be a really effective way to shoot as quickly as possible. I subsequently learned there's, oh, there's a name for this. It's called block shooting, where every scene in the classroom, for example, we would light the classroom, let's say facing the uh, 
blackboard, mm-hmm. right? So we'd have all the lights at the back of the room facing the blackboard. We'd have the cameras at the back of the room facing the blackboard. And we would go through every scene in the movie in the classroom from that camera position, right? Mm-hmm. Then we would change the lighting to the front of the classroom looking back. Mm-hmm. And put the cameras in the front of the classroom looking back, and then we would go and shoot every scene in the classroom throughout the whole movie from that direction. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that changes from scene to scene is the actors would run and change their clothes mm-hmm. and come back. And then, you know, there was there's little shots that we would, of course, you know, pay specific attention to that were important, but we would do that throughout the whole movie. So, because um, a lot of times when you have the time and you have the money... You can shoot a whole scene out, all directions, and then you go to the next scene and you shoot all scenes out, all directions. You can change your lighting back and forth and back and forth. And there's a lot of good reasons why that works as far as making sure you have a continuity of performance and it helps the actors stay focused on, you know, just one scene. But we didn't care about that stuff on this movie. We just needed to get it done. And that, to me, was the challenge. And in fact, that may be probably a better way to word this as I'm thinking out loud. So... To me, this movie was a challenge. Can I shoot everything that needs to be shot, shoot it as well as possible, have it convey what I want it to convey, all within this very, very tight schedule? That's that, And that challenge, I felt, was going to be very educational for me going into The Dark Backward, where I had a little more time and a little more money, of course, but still, it was a independent movie and it was still a tight schedule but we had a lot of movie stars in that movie and I wanted mm-hmm. to make sure that I was as as on top of my game as I could possibly be for being that age and having that limited of an amount of experience you know how old were you when you made this movie I was 22 when I made this I was 23 when I made the dark back wow that's a big deal it, 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 I didn't know it at the time. I look back now as a wizened old 55-year-old man. I think, wow, that is kind of a big deal. That, yeah. um, I'm impressed with my young self. But at the time, I didn't even think about it. You just do it. You know, right. you just don't even think. You just go. Right. And, and how did you – I mean, you, you came out here from Chicago. You were – how old you were? I came out at 17. I, I, all I ever wanted to do was make movies. That's all I ever wanted to do. I grew up making movies with my friends in the – you know, with my dad's Super 8 camera. Uh, and I always knew that um, when the day came, when I was old enough, I would move out here and I'd pursue making movies for real and I'd learn how to make movies the real way. But all the movies I made as a kid, I, I didn't understand it at the time because I was just doing it because I loved it. But I was actually teaching myself the, the, princi- the, the basics, the, the basic principles of how to make a movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I, would t- I taught myself, you know, because you watch movies and you see how they're made. And so I, I learned what coverage was and I learned how to edit and I learned, you know, because originally... I would do these movies and I would do in-camera editing, you know. Mm-hmm. I'd cut the camera and then change the angle and cut, and I didn't know it was done any other way. Then you learn, oh, you can buy a little editing setup, mm-hmm. and you can shoot everything with this actor saying these lines, and then you can shoot everything with this actor saying these lines, and then you can cut it together later, you know. Mm-hmm. Especially when the same actor's playing both roles, which, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I had to do that a lot. Uh, so I came out here originally to go to USC, film school. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of big people were in my class at that time or, or at the school at that time. You know, some of them were older than me, but like Jay Roach was my teacher's assistant in my cinematography class. He went on to make a lot of movies, mm-hmm. including all the Austin Powers movies, as you know. Uh, Larry Karaszewski and Scott Alexander were there. They went on to write Ed Wood, Ed Wood People versus Larry yeah. Flynn. I mean, so many great movies. 
John Singleton was there. Um, Michael Lehman was there. A lot of really great people were there at the time. Anyway, but I kind of felt after I got there, and I was there for about a year, I kind of felt like, you know, if you go to medical school, you spend all these years working really hard, going to medical school. When you come out the other side, you're a doctor, mm -hmm. right, if you do everything right. You go to law school. You spend all these years going to law school. You study. You work hard. You come out the other side. You are a lawyer. You go to film school. You spend all these years studying film, making short films, going to graduate school, making short films. You come out the other end, you're just a schmuck who wants to be a filmmaker. I thought to myself, well, I'm already a schmuck who wants to be a filmmaker. I'll drop out of school. I'll just start writing scripts, and I'll just start knocking on doors and trying to get money to get them made because I learned at this tender age the only magic between making a movie and not making a movie is having the money to make it. Mm -hmm. I, I, I never, it never dawned on me that it was that simple when I was growing up in Chicago. But I learned that here. So I thought, well, why don't I just start writing scripts and fi I'll find money to get them made. So that's a whole other story, trying mm -hmm. to get my first movie made. But the first one I wrote was The Dark Backward. And that was the first one I was trying to get funded. And that script is what led me to meet Brad Wyman, who ended up producing it, with Cassie Nellis. And that's how I met Cassie Nellis as well. They produced The Dark Backward. Uh, well, they first produced Never on Tuesday, then they produced The Dark Backward. But while Cassian was cranking out these movies, that's how this movie came about. Uh -huh. Wow. Well, I mean, what's interesting, too, you know, when you think back when you were trying to make movies, it was a lot harder because you were shooting on film, right? I mean, that was a big wall that any wannabe oh, wait, filmmaker— I'm sorry to interrupt you, but can I just tell you something about <laughs> sure. this dream scene? Sure, okay, please Okay, I do. just have to tell you this, okay? So there was a day on the set. I don't remember what the— what the situation was, but I had to leave the set for a few hours to do something concerning the dark backward. Okay. I don't remember what it was. It might have been a meeting with Bill Paxton. It might have been, I don't remember what it was, right? But Matt Devlin, who was one of the producers and who also had directed some Grindhouse movies himself, mm -hmm. had taken, I said, he, he took over as the director while I was <laughs> gone for those a couple of hours. This is not in the script. <laughs> I came back, and he had shot this. <laughs> By the way, I was thrilled with the footage. We definitely used it in the movie, but this was not. He just he just took it upon himself to shoot this while I was gone. More power to him. Yeah. Well, was it intended to be filler? I mean, this is a this is a lean movie. I mean, this is like what eighty six minutes. I Something mean, like that. Yeah. yeah so. I, I I don't know if it was intended to be anything other than that he had cameras and he just. And he had the cast, and he just kind of went nuts for a, a few hours. But uh, he, I came back, you know, surprised to learn that, there, oh, there's a dream sequence in the movie now. <laughs> <laughs> well, going back to this this firewall of, of making movies, wanting to make movies. Yes. So, it, yeah, in, this, in, in answer to what you were saying, absolutely true. So even when you were making the lowest budget movie possible, like, I mean, this is a, this is a pretty low budget movie. Not, listen, there's always examples of people who've made movies for a lower budget, obviously. I mean, Return of the Secaucus 7 is made for nothing, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Robert Rodriguez's first movie, we all know, was made for mm -hmm. nothing. But still, there are some hard costs. So, so this movie was shot on 35mm film. You had to buy the film. You had to develop the film. You had to print the film. You had to rent editing equipment to be able to edit the film. Because um, this is all on flatbeds, I assume. All right? on flatbeds and mm -hmm. moviolas. There were hard costs that could not be avoided. Um, 
so yes, it was hard to get because now you can make a movie on your phone. Mm -hmm. You can shoot a movie on your phone. You can edit it on on software that you have for, for on your laptop. You can release it on YouTube to a worldwide audience, and you can promote it to a worldwide audience on social media. You could basically do all of that for free mm -hmm. now, you know. And if you work really hard and you are really talented, and everybody is, you know. Um, game to do the best job they can you can actually make a great movie that way mm -hmm. and it's happened obviously countless times but at this time you needed certain basic components that cost money so so to make a movie any movie you had to find you had to somehow raise i mean this to raise one hundred fifty thousand dollars when you're 22 years old you might as well say i need a hundred million dollars you know i mean you're, you're literally knocking on doors you're literally making phone calls you're literally making meetings with people and you're just one of dozens in the day and and those who break seal success but it's it true. takes a lot of people it's a true. real hard time but i will say this era which i miss and anyone who aspires to be a, a filmmaker also you know has have missed out on is that because the market was so huge and every little company that was sprouting up out of the woodwork was making so much money off every one of these little pieces of crap movies. <laughs> they needed so much product that lots of people got opportunities to make movies, their first movies, mm -hmm. you know? Now, we know lots of them are so bad, you, <laughs> you, you have a hard time watching them, you know? But some of them are pretty fun, and some of them mm -hmm. are actually pretty good, and a lot of people started this way and have gone on to make great movies and had great careers. So so it was an amazing time if you're starting out because they needed movies made and they needed people willing to work cheap. And uh, it was a really fun way to get started in the movie business. So you have this career. You started off. You made your first movie. You made this is the, you know, I think you consider this to be like your second movie, roughly. Yeah, yeah. there's yeah. another one in there that I don't talk about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's <laughs> it's a movie and my name's on it, but it's it's not great. And you know, it's or, or, and when I say not great, I mean it's uh, unwatchable. But <laughs> so I mean, my my first real movie is never on Tuesday. Yep. I would go so far as to say even my my second real movie is The Dark Backward. So, but but the this one is my practice movie for The Dark Backward. Right. The previous movie to this is something we just a little experiment. Talk about. It's a little experiment. It's called it's it's called A Tale of Two Sisters. It's just a little experimental movie. It's uh, it exists. I can't pretend it's not out there. But it's not. I don't consider it a real movie by any stretch. We shot it in a weekend, and it was. It was all improvised. It was just a little experiment, you know. But what I'm getting at is, is you have this, this alias, Riff, oh, Riff Coogan. Coogan. Yes. And you're you have this idea that you're going to have like two parallel careers, or or what? Like like it's one thing to have one career. You want to have two. Right. So here, <laughs> so here was the idea, right? Ill-conceived as it might have been, the idea was, because I love. Grindhouse movies. I always have, right? Mm -hmm. But I also aspired from the very beginning to be a, a filmmaker that was, you know, for lack of a better way to describe it, taken seriously and, and work with people who I admired and make movies that the people I admire would get to see. And, you know, I, I, so I wanted to make real movies. I wanted to make Hollywood movies. But at the same time, I didn't want to, <clears throat> I didn't want to be snobby about the fact that I, I, about the existence of and my love of 
Grindhouse movies. So I thought, wouldn't it be fun if I had a sort of a two-pronged career? What if I made real movies as my as my real job? And what if on the side, to continue to practice my craft and also to have fun, what if I made Riff Coogan movies? So I created the, the persona Riff Coogan uh, for, for what was supposed to be a lot of these Grindhouse movies. Mm-hmm. I ended up only making two. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, because then I got busy with with real with movies. real movies, yeah. <laughs> the um, ones that make money, right? Right. <laughs> but but the Riff Coogan persona was this sort of cowboy guy, you know. So I, I even when this movie was finished and we had our premiere and when it was uh, released, we we I appeared on a, a local television show. At the time, there was a famous DJ named the Poor Man. Mm-hmm. And he was the DJ on a station called KROQ, which was the Cool Rock channel at the time. And he had a, a a local show about movies and music and stuff like that. And so, and I knew him a little bit. And so he, I was on his show as Riff Coogan. <laughs> I had a fake mustache on. It was silly. I think the footage exists and is probably, hopefully, available as a supplement on this disc. Yes, we hope so. Yeah. Um but uh, but the but the goal was that people might not ever know that Riff Coogan and Adam Rifkin were the same person. That was right. kind of the fa- the fun sort of fantasy. <laughs> I will say this: here's how I got the name Riff Coogan. Yes, Riff was my nickname as a kid because my last name's Rifkin. But Coogan is from my then favorite uh, Clint Eastwood movie, Coogan's Bluff. That's yes. how I came up with the name. Yes, of all the of all the Eastwood movies, Coogan's Bluff, that was your favorite. That was my favorite at that time. At that yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All I right. mean, I I'm a huge Clint Eastwood fan. Period, and I love so many of his movies, but at that moment in time, <laughs> that was my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I think because of the hippie thing, you know, and I kind of had a romance with hippie sort of 60s culture, so I think that was it. <laughs> Even though his character was the square who comes yeah, to the hippie New York and, you know, chases down the bad hippies. You know? Yes, exactly. with these grades. <laughs> what about my football scholarship? Okay, so this is being a direct-to-video movie. You have no real idea of any sort of income coming in. You have no idea who's renting this movie in Iowa, Minnesota, California, New York, Mississippi, wherever. When did you start finding or did you start discovering anybody who had seen this movie? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I'm always surprised when... Anybody ever has seen or likes any of my movies, right? So <laughs> it's always a pleasant surprise. You're selling yourself short. <laughs> but this movie, I was, I, my first sort of shocked moment came when Paul Verhoeven had just directed The Hollow Man, which yes. is a big, giant studio Invisible Man movie, mm-hmm. right? Starring uh, Kevin, Kevin Bacon, Bacon yeah. right? And uh, I thought it was a great movie, and the effects were amazing. But when he was doing the press tour, for that movie, a bunch of the interviews I read that he gave, people would ask, did you research the history of Invisible Man movies? And he said consistently in several interviews that the only Invisible Man movie he watched was mine, <laughs> which was really bizarre. And he talked about it a lot. And there was one interview where he and Kevin Bacon were in the same interview together. And Kevin Bacon was like, oh, I haven't heard of that one. He's like, oh, you really should watch it. It's very good. Go figure. Completely insane, right? So that that sort of left my mouth hanging again. <laughs> then years later, 
I had made a movie called Detroit Rock City, and we had used some Ramones songs in Detroit Rock City, and he was very thankful. He was appreciative. He was very nice, and he, he thanked me for using the songs because, you know, they get money for that. Right. I'm sure he was and, very happy. Yeah, and uh, we, we were talking, and he said that he was a big, big fan of B-movies, and one thing led to another, and The Invisible Maniac came up in the conversation. I think he even brought it up. And I said I directed that movie under my nom de plume, Riff Coogan, and Johnny Ramone geeked out over me because I had directed The Invisible Maniac. So that was that was shocking in all the right ways. So, so it was very, very bizarre. But also, too, this movie was one of those movies, for whatever reason, that played a lot on that show called USA Up All Night. Yes, of course. Um, so a lot of people saw it then, and a lot of people also saw it when it played on late night, like uh, Showtime. Cinemax. Cinemax, yeah, exactly. So this movie got a lot of play during that era. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people, it turned out at that time, had seen it, which I, I later came to find out. Yeah, well, I, it's funny, you know, when this job came up, I, I think I was confusing this movie with The Invisible Boy, which was sort of, uh, I'm, I'm, maybe I have the name wrong, but you know, our, our memories sort of just combined these movies. And, and it wasn't until much later that I realized that uh, I had seen it maybe only, I don't know, really saw it only like maybe 10 or 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I had seen this movie, but it was something else. Interesting. Well, you know, this movie, um, there's been, people still have consistently been able to see it on bootleg. Yes. Um, but nobody has ever been able to, you know, because by the way, I'm myself excited to see the transfer of this mm-hmm. because the last time I saw it look good was when I actually saw it at the premiere when we screened it in 35 millimeter at the at the premiere. But everything I've the only way I've ever seen it since then is on VHS quality. Really? So it'll be nice to actually because it was actually shot beautifully. Um, and the DP who has gone on to be a big DP has shot a lot of great stuff. And he uh, he did a really lovely job shooting it, but you'd never know it seeing it in, on VHS quality, you know. <laughs> right, right. So so you had a premiere, so there was a 35-millimeter print, even though it was for a direct-to-video movie? Yes. we Believe it or not, we had a, a big premiere, but <laughs> caveat, we had the premiere at the Pussycat Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, <laughs> which, which had just stopped showing... Porn movies. All right, I to, see. Uh, in our defense, okay? Yes. It had just stopped showing porn movies, and they were just starting to try and convert it into a, uh, a, a mainstream theater. But it was packed somehow. I don't know how everybody <laughs> knew about it to show up. Um, it was a blast. I had footage of the premiere, which I can't find. I'm sorry. But it was a really wild and fun time. It, it was... Listen, we, we never, ever, when making this movie, ever thought it would show in front of an audience at all. Mm-hmm. So just the fact that we had a screening at this big theater in Hollywood was just a lot of fun. You have a very confused little boy there, one that will eventually grow up. And this actor here, talk, his name, is it real? Clement von Frankenstein, that is his real name. <laughs> that is true. I, I do like this, this, the way these are lit. So, yeah, I think you're right. This will be fun to see some of the stuff um, in uh, Ultra 
HD. Absolutely. I'm very much looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that must have been Stephanie Blake, by the way, because I know that she, that was sort of one of her tricks. Yeah, that was definitely <laughs> Stephanie Blake. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so you 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 get a premiere, but this was not common for a direct-to-video movie. How, who paid for it? Whose idea was it? I mean, to actually make a 35-millimeter print of this movie, because that also cost money. Well, I will tell you this. At that time, as just sort of a part of delivery requirements, you had to deliver 35-millimeter prints. Like, we had to deliver a 35-millimeter print of Psycho Cop 2 as well, mm -hmm. and a lot of these movies would get theatrical releases in other countries. So it was, it, even though it was never going to be seen in this country theatrically, it was, it was a, uh, it was just part of the contract that you had to deliver a 35 millimeter print. And I assume they're showing those prints for foreign distributors in foreign markets correct, as well. Correct. Correct. And mm -hmm. and and they're released in theaters in other markets in around the world. So this know? was released theatrically in in Europe. I don't know that for a fact, but I know that that's why these movies are. The way they are. <laughs> why you have to deliver 35 millimeter elements. I see. I see. All right. Well, let's talk a second about this gentleman on our left here, Rod. <laughs> How, this is where you first met him. Yes, the great Rod Schweitzer, yes. who, who Tony Marks, as the casting director, found. And uh, we fell in love with him immediately because he completely captured that square jawed, <laughs> like, you know, sort of prep school, like rugby team guy who we wanted, you know, to be sort of all American. You know, he's got a kind of Russ Meyer archetype oh, vibe about him, you know? Absolutely. He has that. He has that. Well, he, he like. Like Dornwinkle, doesn't need a lot of setup. You exactly. just get exactly who he is. You get exactly who he is, and that was the idea. And and he's a great guy, and we not, we obviously fell in love with him and used him in Psycho Cop Returns as well. <laughs> and my plan was when I was going to make you know a ton of Riff Coogan movies, he was going to be in all of them. You know what yeah. I mean? So if we ever make any more Riff Coogan movies, Rod, you know, is going to go back to work for me. But but he's a he uh, he totally captured that archetype, that yes. trope of that guy that that alpha house as opposed to oh, excuse me the the omega house from animal house yes. guy as opposed to the delta house guys yes you know? exactly <laughs> well we just saw too uh savannah and i think it you know we need to at least discuss a little bit about her you know she had a tragic ending we don't have to get into all of that but um i think i remember first hearing about this movie through the e true hollywood story yeah, that's another way that this movie actually got some uh, attention, not necessarily for the, the happiest reasons. Um, I learned for the first time watching that uh, true, true Hollywood story at the premiere of this movie, at the premiere of The Invisible Maniac. And this is all described. There's a E! True Hollywood story about Savannah mm -hmm. and about her um, rise and, and, and tragic end. And uh, I learned from her boyfriend from these days was interviewed and he said that she was very upset at the premiere because people were laughing. She perceived that people were laughing at her. Mm -hmm. Now, I always felt and I think most people would agree that they're laughing because she's funny in the movie. They're not laughing at her. They're laughing with her. You know, she's got mm -hmm. that Marilyn Monroe sort of innate whimsical, humorous quality about the way she she uh, delivers her lines. But apparently, um, she was very sad 
about the way she was perceived at the premiere, which breaks my heart because I thought she was great in the movie. And I think anyway, it's it's very, very sad because she ultimately um, she well, she then became a huge porn star, but then she ultimately uh, took her own life, which is mm-hmm. which is very sad. I don't believe it had anything to do with this movie, per se, but um but that's not a very that's that's you know I don't mean to bring the room down, but that's just a reality yes. that that is part of this movie's uh, legacy, you know. Yeah, but I I I think it like I said it brought a lot of attention to this movie because of the each Hollywood Hollywood story it's true. and it's because true. of this being her really only non-adult film role, Correct. I believe, right? Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. Which, uh, by the way, I was I was shocked when she went into the adult film industry because when we filmed her. Uh, first nude scene in the movie, she was very skittish about doing it. She was very self-conscious and shy, and she asked me if she could have a, a, a little alcohol before she shot it to, to sort of work up the nerve to do it. Mm-hmm. The punchline to that story is she drank too much and got sick and threw up on the oh, set. No, she threw no. up all over the shower set. Oh, no. And we had to shoot it the next day when she was hung over, which oh, no. <laughs> was not fun for her. Oh, no. But um but so anyway, so then for her to have gone from being very, very shy about being doing a nude scene to being the biggest porn star in the world, it was a, a bit of a surprise. But uh hey listen, you know, to become the biggest porn star in the world takes a certain level of Je ne sais quoi. So, you know, yes. more power to her. You know? Yes. Well, and she must have been like like 18 or 19 when she made this movie because she had a very short career making those adult films after this Correct. before she, she passed away. Young. Yeah, she was very young. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, she really is, of the actresses, and I'm not putting any of the other ones down, she really is the one that your eyes gravitate towards. She oh, does she, have that certain... She has that it quality. She has mm-hmm. that star quality that so few people have and I it, that, that's why it's not surprising that she became so so successful in the other you know in the other line of in the in the, in the other Hollywood uh, yes. movies you know yes exactly and, and this is where the movie really turns right it becomes this uh, I guess you would just call it a slasher movie it becomes the maniac in of invisible maniac um but it's kind of light on the gore. Was that a conscious decision? No, it was not a conscious decision. Um, we did not purposely want to shy away from gore. I love gore. Uh, one of the things that when I was a kid that I loved uh, was reading Fangoria magazine and Gorezone magazine and learning how guys like Tom Savini and, and Rick Baker and all the, the maestros would create the, this really cool gore. So yeah, no, I, I it was it definitely wasn't something we wanted to shy away from. It just was not a we couldn't really afford to create a lot of gore. Mm-hmm. Um, we used what like for example at the end of the movie you'll see when when uh, uh, you know one of the actors gets their head blown off. Yes, that's a body that Tony Gardner already had. You know Tony Gardner, our effects makeup uh, artist on the movie, who also did the third arm for the Dark Backward. Um, <laughs> but you know everything we used, we pretty much. Did it the, obviously the cheapest way possible? So we we couldn't really create like when he jumps on, I think it's Bunny's head, you know, in the yes. script her head exploded, you know, but we couldn't really afford that, so we just kind of had the aftermath of him walking away with blood on his shoes, you know. Yep. Um, I think it works fine, 
But I would have been fine with more gore, too, you know? <laughs> well, I guess that was my question. Was it budgetary or was it choice? It was budgetary. 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 Mm-hmm. I mean, this scene has <laughs> uh, has 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 some legendary uh, gore in it where yeah. the sandwich is shoved down his throat and it, it inflates his throat. This scene has been discussed and uh, <laughs> debated in film schools across the, the world for decades. Yeah, friendship bracelets. Boy, you don't see those anymore. <laughs> Man, this really dates it. How do these actors, you know, you've got you've got Noel doing, I think, a lot of the voiceover in post, right? Where he's saying all these lines to what he's doing to these people. Right. But was it hard for these actors to act like they were being attacked by an invisible maniac? Well, I mean, it must feel silly. Here's what's here's what's funny about that very question, okay? So one of the reasons we wanted to make an Invisible Man movie was because we thought it would be so much cheaper <laughs> because you, you just needed sound effects. So we would do people, you know, fight scenes. We didn't have to choreograph any fight scenes because people just pretended they were getting punched in the face and we would put a sound effect in and we, A, we thought it was funny, but B, it was cheap. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't have to, you know, we could just tip over a bookcase and suddenly the Invisible Man did it, you know. Yes. So that was definitely a cost consideration <laughs> when we just came up with the idea from the start. <laughs> that was done with a fishing wire, which, as you know, is very inexpensive. Uh, <laughs> And there's some there's some there's some screen misdirection here. It's coming from one way, but it enters th- from the ghost. <laughs> it's it's entering from a different direction. Well, you know the uh, the crossing of the line is <laughs> is something I I uh, this was your practice. Run. I learned on this movie. Yeah, uh-huh. so I had to do a little bit of you know trial and error to get that right. Uh huh. Uh huh. So what exactly? You know, when you talk about practicing, you know, this being one of them. What were some other the lessons that you learned? Shooting fast. Shooting fast, knowing that you had what you needed and being able to move on, you know? That was a big, big lesson. Um, and did you have video assist while you were watching this at all? You know, I don't I don't think we had video assist on this movie, if, did, I'm, if I'm remembering. Okay. I don't believe we did. I could be wrong. I don't remember that we had it. Um, I will tell you this, though. Did people? You asked, do people feel silly in this movie, pretending to fight with invisible people? <laughs> yes. Everybody felt silly. <laughs> Everybody felt stupid. But everybody was game, mm-hmm. you know, which is uh, admirable mm-hmm. because it is silly and stupid. You know, <laughs> I mean, Kylie, who who's here on the left, she has to dunk her own head in a fish tank mm-hmm. and pretend that she's being drowned by an invisible maniac. I mean, that took a lot of guts. Yeah, and, and there's there's some other interesting direction that happens in this scene. Um, well, we'll talk about when it happens, but. It, is this all taking place basically in one day? I mean, there's I guess there's a couple. I guess there's one other day because there's there's a night scene with. There's um, a few days, yeah, because he goes back and exp- and yeah. like the tests on yes. the rabbit, and he goes back to school, and he goes back and tests on himself. And yeah, I think there's uh, I think it's a few days. But by the way, one of the reasons, <laughs> one of the reasons why this is set at summer school instead of normal school, is because we couldn't afford any extras. Right. So we thought, all right, how do we make the school not look. Empty well, by it's, it's going to be empty, so yeah. yes, exactly. So we just had a sign at the beginning of the movie that said summer school starts today, or whatever the sign said, I don't right. remember. So then And okay, there's only one class. There's only one <laughs> summer school class, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
He really holds the movie together, I have to say. You know, I, I've now rewatched this multiple times. He's fantastic. He is fantastic. And we don't know his real name. No, Noel Peters is not his real name. I personally do not remember his real name. I mean, this was 33 years ago. I think we should ask Tony Marks if he remembers all his right, name, because he right. was the casting director. He might remember his real name. And, and and he doesn't look familiar to me like I've seen him in other things, too. It's like sometimes you can you can piece together these things, Sure. but I've never seen him before. Now just stay calm. And, and I wonder, too, he's like, you know, were people bringing their own wardrobe for this movie, or did you actually have a wardrobe? I we had a wardrobe person, but I think it's one of those movies where okay, everybody bring a few Bri changes of clothes, and we'll figure out which ones you wear for which scenes. You okay. Know? Um, I don't. I mean, the lab coats we had to get, you know, <laughs> and the uh, you know for the scientists and stuff. What were some of the biggest costs beside film? The biggest costs, you know, the location rental was a big cost, but we were there for the whole movie, so that was worth it. Mm -hmm. um, the sign at the beginning that said. You know, the asylum for the yes. criminally insane. I mean, that was a professionally made sign. That cost money on a little tiny movie like this, you know. Um, but for the most part, everything was pretty damn cheap. I'll tell you this. Matt Devlin um, found us some fantastic caterers. They were super <laughs> cheap, but they were amazing. I still remember, 33 years later, the lunches on this movie. So that should tell you <laughs> well, something. Well, what were they? Well, they were, first of all... Uh, Matt was a uh, vegetarian at that time, and I was just uh, recently vegetarian at that time. So a lot of it was vegetarian. It was really good. and um, But I don't remember what the items were. I just remember it was really good. So, by the way, here's a perfect example of cost-effective special effects. Yes. People standing behind the camera throwing books yes. at the cast. <laughs> That's a little trick I learned watching Gremlins. Of course. That is a, is a, is a very effective bit in Gremlins, and so I thought, oh, that'll work here, too. Well, and this is very interesting here. I, I can't quite understand how April is being pinned down to the wall there while the other actress is being forced into Well, uh, I can explain that to you. Okay. She was thrown down okay. at first, and then he switched his attention yes. to Kaylee, Kylie, yes. Kaylee, and... Uh, and but the door's locked, so she's frozen there in fear. And once he kills her, then he goes back and kills. Gail. But why doesn't she get up and attack the invisible maniac? I mean, she can. She doesn't have to cry well, for help. She can. She can go over there and do something. She's Adam. petrified. She's, she's petrified. petrified uh, yeah, with fear. I mean, she could save her friend here. By the way, again, these fish were not harmed <laughs> during this movie. Again, very important to me as an animal lover. Now, I can't promise that they weren't a little scared <laughs> that a giant face. Or, or an invisible man. But uh, we did not, yes, but we did not hurt any fish. Good. Interesting, too, you know, um, your editor on this picture. Ron Resnick. Ron Resnick. Not a pseudonym. That's his real name. That's his name. But th during this sequence, we have these interesting cutaways to these skeletons. I don't know if you noticed that. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, like, what, did, was that due to a lack of coverage? No, that was a motif, okay. which was medical shit. Right. That was our, you know, science, uh, biology. That we were, we were, we were trying to create a, we were trying to elicit a mood. Okay. Of of science, biology, medic, medicine. You know, he, he, because the um, the the invisible serum is 
is coursing through his veins. Got it. So that that's why we did all this stuff. Okay. Now I will so, tell you <laughs> that uh, it doesn't necessarily work, but <laughs> we weren't overly concerned with that at the time. But obviously that was a a conscious choice. It was a conscious shot choice. Yes. while you were doing it, making sure you got all those loving shots of the brains and yes. the veins yes. and the skeletons. That was that was that and was so that was always planned. Yeah, it was intentional. All right. I will tell you at the premiere, this Herc punching the f- invisible face. <laughs> Got a big laugh at the premiere. (laughs) Yeah, now that I look at it, it's weird that we keep cutting back to the the medical poster over and over again. Uh, Yeah, I know. It is strange. Go figure. I don't know what we were were thinking. I'll tell you this about the editing room. Right next door, the editing room uh, was the editing room for a movie called Daddy's Dying Who... Uh, Who's Got the Will? Who's Got the Will, directed by Jack Fisk, the great Jack Fisk, who uh, had previously been and then subsequently later again was David Lynch's production designer. Sure. And and also is a production designer for Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. And for um, uh, uh, um, Terrence Malick. Yes. Anyway, I got to know him a little bit during this time because our cutting rooms were next door to one another and he was a great guy. And it was just, it's just one of those situations where. This movie opened up that door where I got to meet that guy, and it was such a rare, unusual opportunity. And he was so supportive of us making this little, you know, crappy movie. Um, but he, he couldn't have been cooler. And uh, I, w- I would go in and see scenes that they were cutting. Uh-huh. He would show me. We'd show him scenes that we were cutting. <laughs> Didn't have the same, you know, it wasn't a balance. It wasn't balanced, but it was, it was, it was great. It yeah. Was great. Wow. That's. Uh... Pretty fascinating. Yeah, and 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 here we have. Savannah's, so here we have Savannah in her in her death scene. This was not when she was. Uh, was she, she um was she hung over in this one or this the other is the scene? scene where she was hung over. Okay, she looks great though. You'd never know she was hung over. She uh, I cast her in the dark backward as well. Oh, you did. Yeah, I needed a. There's a scene where Bill Paxton um, finds a nude corpse yes. at the dump. Yes. And the idea is you think when you're watching the movie that he uncovers this corpse and that the corpse is going to have something to do with the plot. Mm-hmm. But instead, he just physically molests, sexually molests the corpse and then covers it back up and then we never mention it again. That's yeah. the joke, right? So Shannon says she would do it, right? So we cast her to, to be the corpse. So we're shooting down in the in the trenches of the of the uh, dump, which is just mountains of trash everywhere. And she's way up at base camp getting body makeup put on. We get the word over the walkie. So she was there. She, she was, was there. Do, she she was showed up. She was happy to be there. Um, we get the word over the walkie. You know, Shannon's here. She's we're putting her in makeup. And so a couple hours later, I'm asked to go up to the trailer and approve the body makeup. Right. So I go up to the makeup trailer. And she's wearing a uh, a bathrobe. She takes the bathrobe off. The makeup is fabulous. I mean, just like, you know, corpse makeup. But unexpectedly, she had just prior to showing up gotten very large breast implants. Yes. But no, uh, no shame in that. But it's very different than what I wanted for the scene. Because I wanted the scene to have what seemed like a very young girl who's dead in the in the garbage i thought that would yes. seem more tragic i didn't want it to look like 
somebody who was a voluptuous stripper. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't <laughs> want it to feel that way. I wanted it to feel like it was somebody who who was maybe nabbed off a schoolyard or something. So I, I said to her, "It looks great. Makeup's great. Thank you so much. Great." And then I, I left the makeup trailer, and I went to the first AD and I said, "What happened?" I said, "We can't really use her, unfortunately." So tell her that we're just cutting the whole scene because I didn't want her to feel self-conscious that we were just not using her. Mm -hmm. So she felt fine. She got paid. She was totally cool. And then we, we asked the crew, is there anybody on the crew who'd be willing to do it? And there was a crew member who, who agreed to do it for uh, an amount of money. So, yes. So, and it worked wow, out I fine. never knew that. Yeah. I never knew that. And I, I will say, getting back to actors acting with an invisible man, Rod is by far the best. He is absolutely the best at acting with an invisible man. <laughs> and I wish there were more invisible man movies that he could have been in because he just was a, had a knack for it. And this is the song here that we're listening to as well. There's this a story is, behind that. Yes. Tell me about that. So my friend who I know from USC, we were cartoonists together at the USC newspaper, is named Dan Povenmire. Yes. Dan Povenmire, as I know you know, has gone on to become one of the most successful uh, creators of Disney television. Mm -hmm. He created Phineas and Ferb, which was a phenomena, multi-billion dollar franchise for Disney. He had another show called Milo Murphy's Law, which was a big hit, and he's currently doing a, a big Disney, a new Disney show called Hamster and Gretel. Uh, but at this time, he was, uh, you know, starting out as we all were, and he also had a band. So I needed a song for the movie. And so he wrote a fantastic song, wrote and performed it, which is this song that you, you heard. And it's also repeated at the end at of the, the end movie. credits. Yeah. Yeah. Well, too, uh, we were talking over, but, but Rod doesn't do the full stunt, does he? No, he doesn't jump off the actual roof. The stuntman who you saw in the scientist scene uh -huh. is the one who actually jumped off the actual roof. Mm -hmm. But then when we cut to the car and... And Rod, it's the slow motion shot. Slow motion comes in from the, uh, above frame and hits the tar yeah, roof of the car. Yeah, that's him. That is Rob. Yeah, and that is a stunt. And that looks painful. It was painful. <laughs> it was. It and it was real. And he did it. And that was. And that's my. Was that my car? No, that was. That was Matt Devlin's car. <laughs> okay. I've wrecked my car for other movies, but <laughs> I think that was Matt Devlin's car. We smashed the roof in of Matt Devlin's car. <laughs> <laughs> And here, your, your quota, you know, you talk about quotas. Like, how often is there nudity in this picture? I, I guess I never sat there with, a, uh, with a, a clock watch. But, you know, there used to be, you know, Roger Corman used to say, you know, something has to happen in every reel, i.e., like every 20 minutes. I mean, this movie feels pretty full in terms of that, that TNA quota, I guess. That was the idea. Mm -hmm. we, we figured, like I was saying earlier, we figured if we're going to do an exploitation movie, let's make it as exploitive as, <laughs> as we can. But, uh, you know, again, everybody there was game. Everybody there was, was there for, uh, for, for, for what was uh, required. So, <laughs> no you know, secrets. No, no secrets, secrets when they got Every, to the set. Everybody was a very willing participant. And this too, you know, like, there was a period where you, know, you could show sex, but you couldn't show sex. You had to do these very weird slow-mo montage sequences of people doing kissing and groping of touching things where it's like you couldn't actually show any kind of like thrusting um you know i don't remember us having any restrictions like that on this movie but i 
I also, on this movie, you know, when, I mean, I wrote the original script in like two days. Uh-huh. And again, we shot it in like a week. And so the idea was to just hit every low-hanging fruit <laughs> and just and just load it with as many familiar tropes as possible. And also stretch it out a little. I mean, yeah. let's be honest, right? Without question. That is absolutely true. So to do this lovemaking montage mm-hmm. and, to stri- and to just milk it like that, just the, the slow motion shots of kissing shoulders and elbows and stuff, that we knew going, we knew when we were doing it how corny it was, but okay. that was just all part of the shtick, you know? Now, which led me to my, the next question I had was, you know, did you have to get this movie rated? Yes, it had okay, to be so, an R rating. So tell us about that, because that was something that was also important for the direct-to-video market as well, and it was a big cost. It was a it was a cost, but it was all part of the budget, and it's, every movie you had to you know work that into the budget. And also, too, we did not have the money to go back and re-edit. So um, I knew what we were delivering was going to get an R, and it did get an R. Okay. Unlike the uh, situation with Psycho Cop Returns, where there was a lot more gore and we got dinged by the MPAA. And so then for the for the home video market, that movie got hacked to ribbons. Mm-hmm. And the, the uncut version hadn't been seen, in at least in America, sin- until Vinegar Syndrome put out the Blu-ray. Right, right. That's right. Yeah, so I guess I, you know, I wanted to know if, if you were trying to be conscious of that R rating. But Without you... a doubt, yeah. Okay, all right. But I will say, for, for, for Psycho Cop Returns, we thought we were going to be able to deliver an R. Whoever hacked out all the gore did it with a did it with a fucking Pair of chainsaw. Scissors. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it was. I mean we could have we could have trimmed it little a little bit and got the rating. But whoever did it just cut everything out that could possibly be a, an issue, and it just was um, as a result. A hatchet job. Yeah, and because and, and, you'll be charged if you go back, if you cut it, and you get charged every time that it goes through like an arbitration to like see if it like passes. Well, here's the problem. In those days, you know, you had to finish it on film, mm-hmm. like we were talking about, and so you had to screen the finished version for the MPAA, which, when you think about it, is cruel of the MPAA to demand a finished version because it costs small movies a lot of money to go back and change things. But you required, you know, their seal of approval, and you required that for like the Absolutely. market. Absolutely, you, yeah. you couldn't, you couldn't. For for example, if this movie had gotten, an, you know, if this movie was unrated or NC seventeen, NC seventeen didn't quite exist yet, but close enough, close enough. <clears throat> Blockbuster wouldn't have carried it, and that was the biggest market. You mm-hmm. know? So, so did you have any idea of how many units were being sold to the video stores? I mean, did it, did it was it successful for? For Cassian? Well, I'll tell you this. I don't know how many units it actually sold, but I'll tell you how successful it was for Cassian. Cassian spent probably in the neighborhood of 150, 200,000 making the movie. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, he sold it to Republic Pictures, just the initial sale, for $750,000. Wow. So that's the, that's the industry as it existed then. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why everybody who, uh, who, <clears throat> who could was cranking out exploitation movies. Because and does Mort get some of that money back, by the way, or all of it? Oh, he got most of that back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mert, 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 <laughs> Mert, 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 Mert,
with boobs and some blood and in color because they knew they could make a fortune no matter what. And, and, and in most instances, the, that was the case. Yeah, and that was, uh, that was a big market, that's for sure. Yeah, I, Noel's laugh. He has a great laugh. Yes. That, that, the reason we loved his laugh is because he brought that when he auditioned for The Dark Background. I see. <laughs> all of this just must have felt extremely silly for the actors. How could it not? We all thought it was silly. <laughs> and, and so how much of a change, or was there much of a change from your original draft to what was actually rewritten for this movie? Do you, do you know? Was, it, was there stuff that you couldn't do? It wasn't that big of a difference. I mean, I think, you know, the original draft might not have been long enough. I mean, maybe it was just expanded a little bit here and there. I, you know, wh whatever their contributions were to the rewrite were, 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 were fine. You know, it, it, it made it more production-friendly, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what details uh, they added or, or took away, but <laughs> I mean, watching this movie in a in a in a noisy bar with no sound must be really confusing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, I, I can imagine. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it just looks like he's having a you know an epileptic fit. And were the actors like flubbing their lines because they were laughing ever? I mean, were were, were they? I don't remember us. Breaking, um, breaking down and laughing in the middle of takes and ruining takes. It's not. Okay. It wasn't that kind of vibe. Okay. But we all just sort of. Everybody was just in on the joke. That's that's the difference. Everybody. It's not like anybody felt. It's not like some people thought we were making one movie and we thought we were making another movie. Everybody was, everybody was in on it. Which and, made it more fun. And it's, uh, you mentioned earlier how your how your your mom and and one of your grandparents was in the movie. Did they come to the premiere? And did they Both know? Both my grandparents. Um, no, they did not come to the premiere. No. <laughs> so but did I will they tell know? you this: my grandmother saw the movie. <laughs> I I sent them a video cassette. My grandparents in Chicago. And my grandmother, my my mother relayed this to me. My grandmother watched it. And my grandmother, you know, is was she's no longer with us, was very skittish about uh, swearing and nudity and everything. And she said, well, you know, I could have done without the, the language and, and some of the other stuff. But, you know, it was cute. I thought it was cute. All right, so you got Grandma's seal of approval. Grandma was, Grams was okay with it. All right, and your mom, too? I mean, she, she wasn't at the premiere, but she saw the movie? Oh, yeah, my mom totally uh, was in on it. My mom has it was, was very... Very open-minded mom. Mm -hmm. She was very supportive of what we were doing. Very, everybody in my family was very supportive throughout my whole life, luckily. Mm -hmm. I've never felt stronger. But it's time to move on. Too many nubile young students who haven't had a chance to meet the irresistible doctors. Well, you mentioned, too, you know, I wanted to ask you, you know, uh, Valerie in that scientist's yeah. scene. It's like, she made a movie. Well, Valerie's gone on to become a very successful filmmaker. You know, uh, uh, she was an, an actor in those days, but she she wrote and directed Love and Sex, which is based on her and my relationship. That's what I was just going to yeah, ask. Yeah, John Favreau plays me. Famke yes. Jensen plays her. But she's made other movies. She's mm -hmm. also working with Dan Pavemeyer on this current Disney show oh, now she is. as one of the writers. Yeah, so she's always always working, always busy, doing cool stuff. That's great. Yeah. Yes, don't believe everything you read in the newspapers. How prescient, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so now, one of the things we thought was going to be um, funny was this big battle that they have where 
two invisible people are fighting one another. <laughs> so it was just a lot of shaky camera moves and throwing yeah. shit into the into the frame and sound effects. Yep. We just thought it was so stupid that it would be funny. Yes. Well, I got to say, too, it's like, you know, it's interesting that, you know, when you think of The Hollow Man, which is just like, you know, the first real, well, that was the the first commercial pervy Invisible Man, Invisible Man Thanks movie. Thanks to Paul Verhoeven, of course. Yes, but this is like, this is, you know, it took so long to get a real pervy Invisible Man movie, and, and you did it. I mean, because well, really, I, I accept that as a compliment. But that's part of kind of going back to the Mad Magazine, Zap Comics sort of Totally, idea. National Lampoon Magazine, yes, absolutely. All, all that, that stuff, stuff was my, those are all my influences. The, that's you know? like the ultimate desire, really, is to just be invisible and to be able to go into a girl's dorm and watch them shower, right? Of course. Um, it's, it's of course, never mentioned why their clothes turn invisible. <laughs> um, we didn't care about the logic there. <laughs> so, as you can see, I mean, this is just two invisible people fighting. Stupid. Now, when you see the rabbit cage thrown into the shot... Um, I just want to make it clear that is not really the rabbit in the cage. Which is coming up any moment now. That was the the sound man's fuzzy cut. There oh, right it is. There, right That's there. not really the rabbit in there. Yes. That, the, the sound man's fuzzy. Uh, microphone cover. Oh, his, his, yeah, the the windbreaker for yes, the microphone. That's what that was, rolled up in a ball. Now this is Tony Marks and Matt Devlin. Matt on the left, Tony on the right. Yep. The two producers of the movie. Now, did Tony Gardner make that uh, that body for this movie, or was no? It, that it was, was something else. Something from another movie. Yeah. All right. Everything was pretty much repurposed. Sure did. Thornwinkle, you bastard. Why didn't you think of doing this before you killed all those kids? Now, the two of them went dressed like cops to the Cannes Film Festival with an invisible doll, you know, like uh, uh, handcuffed uh -huh. uh, as part of a sales thing for the foreign salespeople on this movie <laughs> to, to help promote it at the Cannes Film Festival. So they had these uh, invisible handcuffs? like they, they Yeah, were they like... had handcuffs on like and, and like uh, sunglasses. And it, it was a whole thing rigged up to look like an invisible person was handcuffed. Okay. They were there in Cannes to help promote the movie on the Quasette. Oh man, we got robbed of a sequel, didn't we? Sadly. But the, now, but the laughing is great. Was this a part? Was this his apartment? Was it in the school? Everything well? was in the school. Yeah. Right. Everything we shot was in that one location, which made the shoot very, very easy. And now you made a choice to shoot a monitor. Yes. Now, usually in those days, um, when you shoot a television. Mm -hmm. There was a device you could attach to the television to to match the frame rate. Match the frame rate so that you wouldn't get this flicker. We yes. couldn't afford that, of course. <laughs> so we just decided we didn't but care. But why not just shoot it on film? Because we wanted it to look like it was a television. On television. All right, right, all right, all right, right. Okay. Well, well, here we are at the end, Adam. I want to thank you. And there's a couple of interesting credits in these end credits that I wanted to uh, point out and ask you about. Of course. Um, we're getting up on them. Fairly soon, there's some very ridiculous invisible experts 
Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, Miles Dougal, the what? third, the 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 yeah, absolutely. Yes. Miles, yeah, yep, Miles up there. Um, I think it's coming up here pretty soon. Oh, there's your there's your craft supervisor, um, Big Bob K. They were delicious. I don't know if they're still in business, but if they are, guys, your apple crumble was, I'm thinking about it 33 years later. <laughs> Highest paid member on the set. Was that really uh, Wayne and the fire marshal? Oh, yes, absolutely okay. true. Yeah, the fire marshal, Wayne. Oh, gosh. Negative cutter is uh, not an editor with a bad attitude. That's actually uh, a job, right? Yeah, here we are. So you've got your invisible research, Peter Berg. So Peter Berg, before he was yes. the biggest director in Hollywood, <laughs> he, he was in my first movie, yes. Never on Tuesday. Just a good friend of mine. Gave him that credit. Steve Bing yes. is the person who I was telling you about who watched the movie with me at the lab, who said that he thought it was so funny that, that Noel gave such a committed performance. But he's also ended up producing tons of Big, big movies. For, and you did. He produced some movies of mine, yes. but he produced Polar Express. He produced yes. uh, Beowulf. He produced Scorsese movies, Albert yeah. Brooks movies. He He's no longer with us, yes, sadly. Yes, but I know. But uh, he was a very great guy. Yeah. Well, I, here we are at the end. I guess we don't have to sit here and, and, and uh, talk about everybody's names here. But I just wanted to say thank you for coming, making this movie. Thank and any you. final comments? Well, I will just say that... Um, for all the people throughout all these years who have uh, enjoyed this movie, appreciated this movie, asked me many times over, will this movie ever find its way to Blu-ray? I'm just delighted <laughs> that it's now being um, released in a high-quality version and that I get a chance to talk about these fun times. And um, I really just appreciate you and Vinegar Syndrome and everybody who's put so much effort into making this Blu-ray, a fabulous Blu-ray, packing it with great extras, making sure that the, the the movie is of the highest quality. It just really, the last thing we ever thought about when we were making this movie was that would be this is one of the ones that would be being remembered, restored, and having a beautiful Blu-ray release. Of course, Blu-ray didn't exist, but you know what I mean. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you.